Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. New at 10, the wild goose chase to catch a goat thief. What we're seeing right now is really an epidemic of theft on catalytic converters. Well, believe it or not, Aurora has a case of cattle rustling on its hands. I said, I think there's a tree missing. And I looked there and all I saw was a stump. Each year in the United States, billions of dollars worth of stuff is stolen. In 2019 alone, the most recent full year on record, the FBI reported over $13 billion in stolen property in just one year. That's a lot of stuff. And we thought, you know, who would do that? But here's a question you might not think about all that often. How much of that stuff is recovered? How much of that $13 billion and change ends up back where it came from? In 2019... That amount was less than $4 billion, just over a quarter of the total. So a one in four chance that if something was stolen from you in 2019, you got it back. If you don't like those odds, then you're really not going to like what happens when we take the biggest piece of that pie, stolen vehicles, out of the picture. That leaves us with somewhere around 8% of all other stolen property being recovered. So if someone swipes your new laptop or your livestock, your watch, your lawn decorations, or your iPad, whatever it might be, odds are you won't see it again. I thought, well, I think the police seems right. I'll never see him again. You know, at that point, I was like, oh, I'm dead. You know, I'm never going to see that iPad again. <laughs> but every once in a while, stolen items do make their way back to where they came from. And sometimes in ways you wouldn't believe. Two stolen bonsai trees have been returned. It was returned and Tremont police received a... This package was dropped off at the store. A nearly 100-year-old fiddle has been returned to its rightful owner. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. Welcome to Strangeville. I didn't have certainly any thoughts of, you know, I want to go get this person. I want to see him arrested or whatever. I didn't really feel that way at all. This is Alan Engstrom. Um, you know, you could either say it was fun or, you know, that was humiliating for that person. You know, and certainly I did not ever intend, you know, for it to blow up like this and be humiliating. Alan is a mild-mannered businessman from Arkansas. That's his own description. I own a company called CFO Network. We do outsourced accounting and consulting for small businesses, and we're located in Little Rock, Arkansas. In 2013, Allen tacked on what he estimates to be $600 to that year's total value in stolen property. But he never would have imagined what might come next. And it happened to be the, one of the busiest times uh, in the history of my company when all this hit. So it was quite a challenge to handle everything. It was like an avalanche. That I didn't see coming. <laughs> it's a story that begins like every strange story does, with a normal nothing-to-see-here beginning. Again, using his own words, Alan was a, quote, typical business traveler on a, quote, typical business trip. I was, it was as ordinary as you could imagine, and it's something that turned into something as extraordinary as I could imagine. So I was on a flight from Denver to Phoenix, 
and I simply left my iPad on the plane. And I got off the plane and immediately realized that I had left it. I turned around to go back to get it, and they wouldn't let me back on the plane. Alan was off the plane. His iPad was on the plane, just a few feet away. But that didn't matter. As far as he could tell, there was nothing he could do about it, at least not then and there. The plane might as well have been 30,000 feet in the air. I put it in the seat, you know, seat back pocket right in front of me and just got up and left. I was so frustrated. (laughs) The hope was that the iPad might show up at an airport lost and found in a few days. Or maybe a good Samaritan would grab it and decide to cut out the middleman, reach out directly to Alan. Another interesting thing is I had paid a little extra to have my name and email address etched into the back of it. So when I lost it, you know, I don't think there was any excuse from anybody about, you know, hey, whose property it was. You know, they had every every way uh, to get a hold of me. So there really wasn't any excuse. You know what I mean? That's right. The man paid extra to engrave his contact info on the back of his iPad, which in fairness is probably a smart idea. But it only makes a difference if whoever grabs the iPad wants to return it. It wasn't that expensive, and I thought it was worth, you know, just for this situation. You know, if I lost it, somebody would at least have an opportunity to, you know, to get in touch with me and give it back to me. But they didn't. (laughs) But wait, don't all Apple products have that built-in tracking app in case you, I don't know, leave your iPad on a plane? Well, they do. But it's optional. And the... The other interesting thing is I had read some article about privacy. And this is, you know, you got to keep in mind, this was 2013. A lot of this was relatively new, at least more new than it is now. But I read some article about how you've got to uh, switch off your privacy settings and your location settings and things like that. And so I just read that article. And so I decided to do that with my iPad. So I had all the location tracking settings turned off. So that's, uh, that's going to be an important part of the story as we move into it. Tough break, Alan. Tough break. And so I was really frustrated that I, I lost my $600 iPad. You know the feeling. Watching a bus drive off with a bag still sitting on the seat, realizing you left a watch at a restaurant last night, or patting your pocket and having no idea where your wallet might have fallen out. We've all been there. But what comes next for Alan is a little less relatable. Okay, a lot less relatable. I went on with my trip. I couldn't get it. I did all the things that I needed to do, lost and found the airline, etc. I never heard anything back. And I was bummed and I was starting to move on with life. But then weird things started happening on all of our other Apple devices in my family. I'm Suzanne Tofty. And I'm a professional artist, and I have been working for uh, an American company, Berquist and Cloquet, designing for them, and then also designing for a Norwegian company. If you've ever stopped by a gift shop that sells Scandinavian knickknacks or art, specifically Norwegian art, there's a decent chance you've seen some of Suzanne Tofty's work. So that has kept me busy. I'm, I'm trying to not work as hard as I have been, but, <laughs> but uh, so uh, I still do it. I paint every day. Suzanne does a particular kind of Norwegian painting called rose mauling. Rose mauling, and then I do Norwegian scenes, um, 
old farm scenes in Norway with the old farm buildings and lots of goats and little children and sometimes old people. Suzanne Tofte is uh, probably better known in Norway than she is in her own country. This is Boyd Hoopert, a longtime reporter with Care 11 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who's covered Suzanne's story. In her world, she's a big deal. And uh, if you go into a if you go into a Norwegian gift shop, and, and that could be in a Norwegian community in the United States, a Norwegian-American community, or in Norway. So my wife and I were actually talking about this um, just the other day, in fact. I wonder how much of her art uh, has been sold in Norwegian gift shops and brought back to the United States by people who don't even realize that it was painted by someone in Sartell, Minnesota. If you look closely really closely at Suzanne Tofty's paintings, you'll spot something hiding in the background. Alan Ingstrom's iPad. Okay, no, it's not Alan's iPad. Let's forget all about the iPad for a minute. She hides little gnomes, or as they're called in Norway, Nissa, or Eulanissa. In Norway, their little gnomes are called Eulanissa. And so in my paintings, I always include the little Nissa in there, hiding behind trees and behind rocks and things. So that's kind of my trademark. There is a Nissa in every picture that she paints. Almost every picture. Suzanne and her husband Jack live in Minnesota and are both of Norwegian descent. So even before Suzanne became a world-renowned Rosemaler, they knew all about the legend of the Nissa. Well, it is a, a kind of a tradition or a legend that in Norway, the little Nissa, Eula Nissa, lives in the barn. And he watches over the cattle and makes sure everything is all right and even watches over the family. But And on Christmas Eve, you have to put a bowl of rumagrut with lots of butter on it. Rumagrut is a, a porridge that Norwegians make. You have to have a really good bowl of rumagrut with butter on it and put it out in the barn for the Eulanissa. And if he likes it, then he will be good to you all year and take care of your cattle and everything. But if it isn't of good quality or if you forget to give it to him, he plays tricks on you. Here's Suzanne telling Boyd Hoopert about the Eulanissa in a story that aired on Care 11 a few years back. The Irish have their leprechauns, and the Germans had their gnomes, and the uh, Norwegians had their Eulenissa. Suzanne Tofte has risen to fame among Norwegian folk artists, though she lives not in Norway, but near St. Cloud, Minnesota. This is the Eulenissa enjoying his lutefisk supper. Suzanne's paintings sold in gift shops from Scandinavia to North America. This is Merry Christmas in Norwegian. But her story took a turn 40 Christmases ago when one of Suzanne's favorite creations fell victim to a heist. As the holiday season approached one year in the early 70s, Suzanne and Jack Tofty decided their house needed a gnome out front. I wanted to have a gnome. And so I did, drew the design out on a piece of, of a, a big board, and my husband cut it out, and it was almost five feet 
high. It's tall. It's a big, big gnome. And I painted it, and I painted the, a Velcomen sign, like he's holding the Velcomen sign up. And that is, means welcome in Norwegian. And so uh, that's how it started. Oh, he's a jolly fellow. Uh, big smile, pointy cap, uh, very welcoming. In fact, he says, uh, welcome in, uh, in Norwegian, written across the gnome. Hard not to look at that gnome and feel happy. And it was uh, placed on her lawn to celebrate Christmas. And it wasn't just Christmas. The Tofties would put their gnome out for any big occasion. Birthdays, barbecues, confirmations, you name it. But every year, as Christmas approached and snow piled up on the lawn, neighbors could always count on seeing the gnome out there, wired to a tree, smiling and holding his welcome sign. We had him out, wired to the tree, and at that time, my husband had made this big snow sculpture of a teddy bear. It was huge. People would come and stand in front of it and take pictures with it. But then one Christmas Eve, sometime around the mid-1970s, the five-foot-tall smiling gnome found itself as the target of a heist. Well, she woke up, and uh, she looked outside. And as Suzanne puts it, my gnome was gone. And the gnome was gone. And I felt so bad. And we thought, you know, who would do that? The Tofties theorized that maybe some pranksters wanted to smash the snow sculpture next to the gnome. But after realizing the sculpture was frozen solid, decided to swipe his buddy instead. I was so upset, so I called the police, and I wanted to report the crime. And report the crime she did, telling the police something important was stolen from her yard. She called a police officer, and then she gave a very detailed description of her missing gnome. And he said, well, could you please give a description? And so I said, yes, he has a blue jacket and a red, real tall, red pointy hat and lots of whiskers. And the lady, there was a lady in the office where the police was called, I was talking to, and he said, oh, she said, I know what that is. That's a gnome. And then he said, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I'm afraid that, that he's probably in somebody's dorm room and you'll probably never see him again. The Tofties shared the entire saga with Kara Levin in 2017. Suzanne's hand-painted, red-cheeked, guest-welcoming gnome snatched from her front yard Christmas display. Susie went and called the cops. Jack is Suzanne's husband. I told him they stole my gnome, and he said, what's a gnome? They said, can you give a description? And I said, well, yes, he has a, a blue jacket and a real tall, red, pointy hat and lots of whiskers. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but I'm afraid you'll probably never see him again. He's probably in somebody's dorm room. And this was 40 years ago. <laughs> Suzanne went back to painting making more little friends. They're sold all over Norway. As her memories of her old one faded. Let's return to the year 2013. 
when our friend from Arkansas, businessman Alan Engstrom, leaves his iPad on an airplane. Now, you might not realize that items lost during travel don't all end up at the same lost and found. According to the website for the Denver International Airport, where Alan Engstrom was traveling to, only items lost in public areas of the airport go to the airport lost and found. But let's say you leave something at an airport, restaurant, or a shop. At least in Denver, it's on that business to keep track of your lost item, not the airport. And then there's Alan's situation. If you leave something on an airplane, you have to go through the airline. We're receiving significantly more calls We're than normal. Serve you as quickly and hold time high call volume. Please remain on the line, and your call will be answered in the order in which it was received. Your wait time is approximately 30 to 40 minutes. We called a bunch of different airlines, listened to a lot of bad hold music, and learned that at least nowadays, most of them have you file a report online. For items left on board an aircraft, fill out a lost property report. A report that includes details like your flight number, the item you lost, when and where you lost it, and anything that makes your item unique. But being that we didn't actually have something to report missing, that's as far as we got in the process. I have no idea how long it might take to hear back or how often lost items are actually returned to their owners. But that's what Alan says he did. He filed a lost and found ticket with the airline and waited. You know, they gave me a number like, hey, call this number for lost and found, file a claim, that sort of thing. So, you know, at that point, I was like, oh, I'm dead. You know, I'm never going to see that iPad again. <laughs> a few days passed and Alan moved on, chalking the $600 iPad up as a loss. And so while we had lost the iPad, and I kind of started moving on, stopped thinking about it, uh, we started getting some peculiar pictures showing up on our phones that we couldn't explain. In fact, my son was at the doctor with my wife, and he was, he was on his phone where they were waiting for the doctor. And he pulls up his phone. He says, Mom, who is this person? And it was this really, really, you know, uh, obviously somebody we didn't know that was making these really bizarre uh, facial expressions, taking selfies. On Alan's son's iPhone was a photo of a woman none of them recognized. And not just any old photo, but one of the goofier, more ridiculous selfies you can imagine. You know, the kind of photo you can only share with your best friends. Not a random family you've never met in Arkansas. At least, I hope not, anyway. And my wife had no idea who it was, and so she was uh, puzzled, to say the least. And so they called me, uh, they showed me the pictures. I had no idea what it was. But after 24-odd hours of wondering what in the heck was going on, Alan figured it out. It took me, you know, like a day to, to stitch together, like, wait a minute. These pictures are coming from my iPad, and that is the person who has my iPad. <laughs> what Alan figures is that his iPad never made it to any lost and found. Instead, someone grabbed it on the plane, and from there, it ended up in the hands of this woman, whoever she was. And now, photos she was taking on the iPad were being backed up to all of the family's other devices, thanks to Apple's iCloud. 
That thing we all pretend to understand that's built into every Apple device and allows users to sync files, photos, and other data across different devices. We had just started using the iCloud backup, and again, this was relatively new, at least for us, back in 2013. And somehow we screwed up the whole iCloud thing within our family so that all of our, like all of our pictures from each of our phones and stuff were all getting kind of mixed up in the cloud and were being restored kind of randomly to each of our devices. So my son, I was getting my son's pictures on my phone. My son was getting my pictures on his phone, et cetera. It was all getting jumbled up, right? Alan had all but given up on seeing his iPad ever again. But now here he was, face-to-face, well, sort of, with the person who now had it. What he soon figured out, though, was that while he could see her photos, he couldn't communicate with her. As far as he could tell, she had no idea the photos were even being shared in the first place. All I could see were these really, really goofy selfies that she was taking. Presumably, I mean, the only conclusion you could make is she, she thought she had total privacy. She had no idea that the stuff was getting backed up and, you know, certainly no idea that we were, we were looking at these pictures. <laughs> Great. Alan can see who has his iPad, but he has no idea where that person is. So what now? That's the only connection you have to your stolen iPad. What do you do at that point? I had no idea what I was going to do. So the only thing that I could think of is I just posted one, one post on a community Facebook page. Of, the, of this goofy, you know, facial expression person. The post, dated February 27th, 2013, reads, Hey, cool. This is an actual pic of the wonderful person who stole my iPad. Apparently, the pics she is taking of herself are backing up and appearing on my phone. No, I'm not kidding. This is really happening. Attached is one of the goofy selfies of the mystery woman in possession of the iPad. You know, and and I would just say that you really need to Google Alan Ingstrom iPad and actually look at the the picture of this selfie because you know you can you can hear me describe it was goofy, but you have to see it really to understand just how funny these pictures were. And there was multiple pictures. I ended up posting uh, three or four of them just because they were just really funny, to be honest. And while Alan's intention was to share it with his friends, the internet, as it often does had other plans. It was immediate, like it just went crazy on online. Everybody was commenting on it, everybody was sharing it. And the next day I had every local TV station lined up outside of my office to interview me. Looking this way, looking that way, looking another way. This is Alan on the news showing the selfies to a reporter in a story that aired on KTHV, a station in Little Rock, Arkansas. These self-portraits are among the numerous photos streaming onto Alan Ingstrom's iPhone. After losing his iPad on a flight from Phoenix to Denver, he feared he'd never see the expensive tablet again until his son Mason got this picture on his Apple device. And he said, Mommy, who's this? (laughs) And of course she said, I have no idea who that is. Showed up on my phone. And so after a while, we figured out what was going on. That's, that's the person that has my iPad. Ingstrom's photo stream between his Apple devices and the one missing are leaving behind a trail of evidence. Within a matter of 48 hours, the story got picked up globally. I think at its peak, somebody said, hey, according to Google, your story is, is 
currently running on over 55,000 news outlets around the world. It was absolutely insane. So this uh, this one Facebook post just absolutely blew up. It's, I guess it's the definition of going viral, right? I've never, quote, gone viral before, you know? <laughs> I'm a mild-mannered businessman in Little Rock, Arkansas, right? So this is all very, you know, strange to me. And as I said before, this is like the busiest time really in the history of my business uh, at this point. So I'm, 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 I'm juggling, you know, a huge load with my business and the media frenzy was, was unbelievable. Alan remembers there was another news story in the headlines the week his iPad story broke. A small story out of Vatican City. I remember it happened the day the story broke locally. It happened to be the day that they had uh, picked Pope Francis, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they there's an elaborate thing in Rome, and they they they, announced, they made the announcement of who the Pope was going to be, which is huge news, right? Right. It's huge news. But bigger news than a businessman from Arkansas getting his iPad stolen? Not a chance. So I had come home from a uh, long... Well, actually, I had come to visit my parents after after work one day when this hit. And I hadn't really been paying that much attention to what was going on because I was so busy. I walked into my parents' house and they were just... Their jaws were hitting the floor. They were glued to the TV. The local news had just run, like just started. And... This is the day when the, the news of the Pope was announced. You would think that would be the number one news story. They ran my story ahead of the Pope. I could not believe it. <laughs> Alan, his iPad, and this mystery woman were all over the place. Using the power of social media, Ingstrom's story, along with this woman's face, have gone viral on the internet. This is someone in Phoenix that's sharing it, and it just goes on and on and on. Unfortunately, Ingstrom disabled the iPad's locator settings. But with the amount of attention this story is receiving, Ingstrom is optimistic he may see his tablet once again. It's pretty crazy how quickly it spreads when it's when it goes viral. I've never had anything like that happen before. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Suzanne Tofty's beloved gnome was stolen from her yard in Minnesota decades before the invention of the iPad or the advent of social media. But even though it wasn't a viral internet sensation, the five-foot-tall Nissa with a blue jacket, red pointy hat, and lots of whiskers did remain on Suzanne's mind over the years. Now, this was something that she created with her own hands. It's not like something that she had gone to buy at Walmart. This was something she spent a considerable amount of time painting, you know, for her enjoyment, her husband's enjoyment, and but mostly, I think, for her neighbors to enjoy. Even decades later, Suzanne still wondered about her gnome, who took him and where he might have ended up. He was uh, in captivity, is <laughs> what she told me. Yeah, and the police weren't particularly encouraging. The officer said that she talked to said he was probably in somebody's dorm room. And I think that's likely. 
yeah. a, a college prank. College students probably picked it up, and you know, who who knows what his whereabouts were, and that that's you know, part of the mystery and a kind of a fun part of the mystery. Where was he all those years? Well, over forty years later. While Suzanne and her husband Jack were picking up lunch, you order whenever you're ready. Suzanne would spot a certain someone wearing a blue jacket, a red pointy hat, and sporting whiskers out of the corner of her eye. We were in the parking lot, just getting in the car, and I happened to look over at the little strip mall. Susie saw it first, yeah. I said, Jack, there's my gnome. Forty some years later, Suzanne and her husband stopped at an Arby's looked across the parking lot, and Suzanne saw her gnome. I said, Jack, there's my gnome. Jack said to his wife, no, that's not your gnome. She said, Jack, there's my gnome. And I said, ah, what are you talking about? (laughs) But even Jack knew upon closer inspection. There's none other like it anywhere. They went to take a closer look, and it was undeniable. It was Suzanne's gnome. There was no doubting it. Uh, She had painted it. She knew. At that point, Jack knew, too. It was her gnome. It was him. And I hadn't seen him in over 40 years. So it was a nice reunion. 40 years had gone by. And somehow, here was Suzanne's gnome. Looking like he'd seen a thing or two over the years, but still smiling and holding his welcome sign. Instead of manning his post in the Tofty's yard, The gnome was standing guard outside the most Minnesotan-sounding record store you could possibly think of, Ufta Records. Across the parking lot, there he was, welcoming customers to the Ufta Record Store. Ufta Records. And so we went in this door, and my husband was a little gruff with him. He said, where did you get that gnome? Where did you get that gnome? He was demanding answers, and... Poor Jeffrey Peterson, the owner of the record store, is left there having to defend himself. But it turns out the shop owner, Jeffrey Peterson, wasn't the thief who masterminded a gnome heist all those years ago. He was just your friendly Minnesotan record store owner who happened to love gnomes. Got it at a garage sale about 10 years ago. Turns out Jeffrey Peterson has a thing for gnomes. Everyone needs a gnome. And then he said, well, I bought it at a garage sale. And the lady that I bought it from, she bought it at garage sale. For a, for a while, it sat in his basement, but he was opening up this record store, and he named it Oofta Records. And, you know, what better, uh, you know, it's like it's, it's, it's the Walmart greeter of the Oofta Records store to have a gnome welcoming customers to Oofta Records. And so uh, he said, well, would you like him back? And I thought, oh, I don't know. He looks so cute right in front of your store with his welcome sign and greeting people to come in. And I can come and talk to him anytime I want. I think we should leave him here. And so that's what we did. And she decided the gnome looked pretty good right where it was. Well, it's just a few miles from Suzanne's home in Sartell to the Ufta record store in St. Cloud. Suzanne likes that. She can visit her gnome whenever she wants. I think as she said at the time when I interviewed her, she said, uh, oh, he looked very happy. This past spring, Boyd Hooper and his wife went up to the Tofties' home in Sartell, Minnesota for coffee. 
and they arrive to see a familiar face out front. So we arrived at Suzanne's home and uh, came around the corner, and there he was. The gnome is standing in front of her door, like just greeting us, welcoming us to her home. And uh, what a what a great surprise. Like, I couldn't wait for her to come to the door. So I go, what happened? How did you end up with the gnome? 40-something years after the great gnome heist of the 1970s, there he was, slightly worse for wear, but otherwise looking like he'd never left. She told me that uh, he had he'd appeared basically in the same way that he left, that a car pulled up on Christmas Eve, and the gnome was left standing in front of her house in the snowbank. I looked out my window, and there was my gnome, right in, our, right in the snowbank in our yard. He returned home. And so I thought, oh, I know who did that. Suzanne says, unfortunately, Jeffrey Peterson had to close Ufta Records amid the COVID-19 pandemic. But when that happened, with a little help from the Tofty's daughter... He made sure the gnome found his way back home. And so now we're happy we have him back home. He's smiling, very happy. He's by our front door, greeting people when they come. And uh, I have geraniums sitting in front of him. He looks very nice and respectable. True to her Minnesota nice roots, Suzanne says she wouldn't be angry at whoever took the gnome all those years ago. But she would have a few questions. I would just ask, well, how did you do it? And, you know, where has he been all this time? That this lady, was it true that a lady bought it at a garage sale? Or, you know, I'd kind of like to know where he was because he was kind of a big thing to store all this time. And some, you know, it's, it's really a miracle that he didn't get thrown away or destroyed. So... I guess it was just meant to be. I was meant to get him back. And not only did she get her Nissa back, but she got one heck of a story out of the deal. I get the feeling Suzanne's probably told this a hundred times to family and friends. And uh, I'm just, I feel fortunate that I somehow stumbled on this and we got the opportunity to share it with our viewers as well. So this Christmas, let it be written. No is where the heart is. It is a good story, and it has a happy ending. That's the stories I like. (laughs) We'll never know where the gnome spent the majority of those 40 years on the lamb. But I don't really want to know, because I think it's such a fun part of the story. where, where, Where was he all those years? Unlike the Tofties, Alan Engstrom has yet to spot his iPad smiling outside of a local record store, which, to be fair, sounds like a terrifying encounter. But that's not to say we've heard the end of Alan's story. As he told KTHV in 2013, the story just kept getting stranger, and at least for Alan, more entertaining. It's been a continuing fountain of entertainment for me. Uh, It's just like I'll wake up one day, I'll look at my pictures, and there'll be new pictures there. I'm like, oh my gosh. She has no idea. With one snap, 
this display of various facial expressions continue to taunt Ingstrom. Now he's hoping to track down whoever made off with his tablet. I have no problem putting it on Facebook because, hey, you know, it's fun for me and it's apparently fun for a lot of other people. And there's always a chance that somebody will say, hey, I know who that is and I want my iPad back. Against the odds, Alan Engstrom, self-described mild-mannered businessman from Arkansas, was something of an internet sensation. I can remember calling into a board meeting with uh, different board members from across the country, and we were in that time period, you know, when you're talking small talk before the meeting actually starts. They were talking about my story without knowing it was me. They were saying, oh, this guy lost his iPad, and I was like, I was like, Dave, that is me. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, that's me, Alan Engstrom. Look at it. They're like, oh, my gosh, that's you. I mean, it ran on uh, headline news, CNN headline news. It was in USA Today, International Business Times, uh, you name it, uh, Huffington Post, all that stuff. It was in every major news outlet. I absolutely couldn't believe how the story just completely blew up. The story got so big that Alan even started to feel for the mystery woman in the photos, who, I don't know, might have struck a different pose had she known the photos were going to be splashed all over the Internet. Well, I guess she probably would have turned the photo sharing off, too, but you get the point. I actually started feeling a little bit sorry for this person, even though, you know, and, you know, I guess I, can't, I have to say I can't prove that she was the thief, right? She might have, um, you know, somebody else might have taken it and sold it to her, and so... I never intended for this to blow up the way that it did, right? I thought I was just sharing it at a, you know, a local community thing, and I thought it was, you know, it was a funny thing, goofy face, and that was going to be the end of it. I had no idea how huge this was going to be. And it, and it is a story of, you know, be careful because stuff can blow up, you know, online, and you completely lose control of it. I only did four interviews, and it ended up in 55,000 news stories around the world. I mean, think about that. That, was, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And so I did feel a little bit sorry for her because it, it's, just, it's just so goofy. I mean, she, she, was, you know, she was probably laying in her, in, in her bedroom, you know, taking these selfies, thinking that she was just being goofy you know, all by herself. You know, she had no idea that it was going to get back to me, and she certainly had no idea that her picture was going to be all over the globe, <laughs> you know? Over a thousand Facebook users shared Alan's original post, and countless others were sharing the news stories every day. Some just thought it was a funny story, but others wanted to solve a crime. Um, and it was also interesting that there's a lot of people that were were interested in the story because they wanted to use the power of the internet to solve crime, right? So they wanted to find the iPad. And the, the, the story of sort of what happened next is it gets a little bit more complicated. As the story spread, Alan heard from all kinds of people who'd taken up the case of the stolen iPad and were determined to solve it. So there was still this kind of, I don't know, crowdsourcing groundswell of people that were like, hey, we found your iPad. Um, you know, they were sending me all kinds of pictures. Is this her? Is this her? That sort of thing. And so there was, you know, there was kind of this movement to try to use the power of the Internet uh, to, to, to actually solve crime. People are trying to take the images and do Google, uh, I guess, image search or reverse image search or something like that to try to 
use that image to you know to match uh, match it with a name. Uh, it was not successful, but it was fun trying, right? So uh, there was a lot of people that were you know going back and forth. Uh, I was I was really you know I was overwhelmed with the media coverage, but I was also overwhelmed in a, I guess in a good way. It was fun uh, with all of the the groundswell of people that were sort of vested in the story, you know, and wanted to see it through, wanted to, you know, play detective and, and try to solve the, solve the crime, I guess. You know what I mean? Well, we know someone stole the iPad. We don't know that the woman in the photos is the person who grabbed the iPad on the plane. For all we know, she bought it on Craigslist or something. But what we do know is that however she ended up with it, she didn't seem interested in reaching out to Alan. Again, he says his contact info was right there on the back of the iPad. I knew that she had my name and email address and phone number etched on the back of it. So she knew, you know, that it, that it was my iPad. And if she wanted to get in touch with me, she could have. But as the story went viral, Alan says he never heard from her, aside from the stream of selfies. Then, in the middle of all the iPad-related chaos... Alan says he and his family had a vacation planned in Costa Rica. So we were there for like eight days. We were we had a car and we were driving all over the country. So we went, you know, we were on the coast, we were in the mountains. So we were moving around. A lot of, a lot of the time we were out of touch. But even on vacation, Alan couldn't help but check in on his viral post from time to time. I mean, who could resist? And so every once in a while, we would get to a hotel you know, and we'd had a long day or whatever. The kids would be, you know, sleep in bed, and I would log into Facebook or whatever, and get, you know, get on the Wi-Fi and just kind of take a peek at what was going on. And um, at one point, we logged in, and all the, the iCloud pictures, right, started syncing, so it was still hooked up. And the pictures that I got back on my phone from the iPad, the latest download, if you will took a very, very different tone. This time around, the photos were of men. And they weren't goofy, playful selfies like the first round of photos. Alan says the men were looking directly into the camera like they were trying to communicate something. As if, this time, they knew the photos were being synced up. Like, maybe they saw the Facebook post or the news stories going around. Yeah, there was little doubt in my mind the way that the, the media had saturated this story that that, uh, that that had happened. Alan's impression was that they weren't having quite as much fun with the whole mix-up as he was, to put it lightly. The reaction that I had was uh, one of, like, you know, uh, danger and, uh, you know, my my paternal instincts kicked in and, you know, protect my family. You know, and all, all of a sudden I started realizing, wait a minute, we're still connected to this iPad. They're connected to me. I'm connected to them. You know, they may be getting my pictures. You know, that's when all that really started sinking in. And of course they could, you know, at this point, uh, the story had, had blown up. Everybody had seen it. So they could pretty quickly figure out who I was, where I lived, all this other stuff. And so, you know, maybe it was an overreaction, but I reacted in, you know, in a way that, you know, protect my family. And so I, I immediately woke up everybody we got all of our, you know, Apple devices on the table, and I immediately, like, switched off <laughs> all iCloud, you know, connections. At that point, we completely severed everything to the iCloud um, at that point. And so, you know, that's when it took a turn. That's when I stopped talking to the media. Um, I figured at that point, you know, what, what had happened had happened, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do anything to add more to the 
to the fire type of thing. That was the end of the story for a while. But when we reached out to Alan, he said after all the excitement died down, there was yet another chapter to it. And it was months later. Uh, it had really died down. And I happened to see somebody post something about how Facebook was filtering their, their, you know, their IMs. And I thought that was odd. I'd never heard about that. And there was some obscure setting in some weird place on Facebook. And so I followed the directions and figured out where this was. Basically, it was a spam filter for your, you know, for your, for your messenger IMs. And I found it. And this folder was full of probably 10,000 messages from people that were trying to get a hold of me. Some of these messages were from people claiming to know the identity of the mystery woman. So... Obviously, I didn't have time to go through all 10,000 messages, but skimming through, I was able to see that there was a cluster of messages from the Houston area. And all of these people were saying, basically, hey, I know who has your iPad. And some of them said, here's my phone number. Call me. I know who has your iPad. Tempting as it might have been, Alan says he decided not to call. After all the chaos and drama, he wasn't interested in getting anyone in trouble. And in his words, he just wanted to let sleeping dogs lie. I did not, but I knew that I could, right? So at that point, in my mind, you know, I I'd kind of said, hey, you know, case solved, right? Because I knew that I could call these people and there was enough of them. They were all saying the same thing. And so in my mind, I was like, yeah, if I wanted to solve the crime, I could. You know what I'm saying? I considered the case solved, if you want to look at it that way, right? I think the the cluster of messages of people who very strongly uh, said, I know who it is, to me, that's a pretty strong likelihood that if I wanted to take that extra step, I could actually identify the person who had my iPad. So Alan is still out an iPad. But in exchange, he says he got his $600 worth in entertainment value. And that's a gift that even eight years later, keeps on giving. I'll be like in an elevator. This happened like last month. I was in an elevator and you, you get people kind of looking at you out of the corner of their eyes, you know, and you kind of look back at them and they'll kind of smile and they'll say, hey, did you ever get your iPad back? <laughs> it's like it's been more than, what, seven, eight years and I still get people and, and all the time people are like, hey, uh, you look familiar to me. You know, where, where have I seen you before? You know, I'm like, well, you know, there was this story. <laughs> Next time on Strangeville. And do you have any written proof, documents, videos of that? Yeah. Is it easy to see? Do you share it with people? No. Ain't nobody's fucking business. Strangeville is a Vault Studios production. Our writer and producer is Reed Redman. Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland, mixes and edits the show. Executive producers are Brian Weiss and me, Will Johnson. Also, special thanks to our summer intern, Nia Dumas. You can hear more from me on our daily podcast, The Daily Crime, available wherever you listen to Strangeville. To learn more about our other podcast, visit vaultstudios.com. Until next time, watch out for gnome thieves, and thanks for listening. <laughs>